But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a lot of Netflix shows going on right now about the same topic. This tends to happen when one documentary gets released, a bunch of documentaries get released on the same topic, unless it's on a topic that cannot be reproduced, like Tiger King. That's just one that you're not going to have another one of those. Uh, I hope. The Lord can only handle one. Uh, I suppose the Lord could handle more, but like the world can't handle more. Right now, there's a lot of documentaries out there on scammers. So you may have seen some of these, Inventing Anna, not really a documentary, but a kind of a retelling of a scammer. I haven't seen it. Uh, you, you've probably seen the one uh, about uh, the, the woman who started the, uh, the tech company, Theranos. There you go. Yeah, that's been going on right now. There's also uh, one called The Tinder Swindler. I haven't seen that one either. But the one that I did choose, because I only have time for one of these, was Bad Vegan. I decided to watch that with my wife. Uh, I see a few people have seen it. Uh, Bad Vegan is the story of this woman who actually grew up over in Newton. Her name is Sarma, which is a little confusing because she's a chef, and we have like the best restaurant in Somerville is called Sarma here, but just kind of disconnect it from your mind for a second. Her name's Sarma, and she's a chef in New York City at this vegan restaurant where they're making like vegan lasagna and stuff, if you can imagine how that's even possible. And it's this celebrity hotspot. They have people coming in from all over the place. They have Tom Brady coming into the restaurant, Woody Harrelson coming into the restaurant. It's a very well-known restaurant. It's getting written about in all the New York City uh, all the New York City publications about food. It's really hitting the big time with a uh, restaurant. And Sarma's doing a great job. She's got investors. And she, the story is about her falling in love with this guy named Shane Fox that she meets on Instagram. Except for, there's red flags all over this, because except for his name, after she gets to know him a little better, isn't Shane Fox, it's Anthony. And as she talks to him more, he shows up, he doesn't look much like his pictures whatsoever. And he's constantly asking her to, to wire him money. Now, if there's ever a scammer thing, I don't think I've ever dealt with a real person who asked asked me to wire them money. Okay, that's just like red flag, wire me money, scammer, more than likely here. It's like, yeah, we've had all kinds of scammers uh, try, to, try to get us with this type of thing. And there, there's red flags all over the place. He doesn't seem to have any real, real job. Beyond that, he even promises her this weird spiritual stuff. He claims that he can make her dog immortal. Claims that her dog will never die. 
Over the time that they were together, he got her to wire him $1.5 million. And where do you even spend $1.5 million in that short amount of time? Because it was always like, I need it now. Send me $20,000 now. Where else but the casino? And he was over at the Foxwoods, hitting the casino over and over again. So she just got scammed out of her money, out of her livelihood, out of her reputation. They end up finding her. I'm not giving you anything that's not in the trailer, okay? And the trailer, you might claim that the trailer gives away everything. It kind of does, but, you know, uh, that, that is what it is. They, they find her holed up in a hotel in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, which is the opposite of New York, uh, and ordering dominoes on her credit card, which is just like the ultimate downfall of a New York City vegan queen is hanging out in Pigeon Forge ordering dominoes. She didn't eat the dominoes, so they claim, okay? As we watched this show, Megan and I just kept looking at each other, and, and really, it wasn't that good of a show uh, to, be, to get my review of it, okay? I did not enjoy it that much. It was kind of, because we, we watched the whole thing, and we were just like, this is a story of just how someone can be so gullible, like, how is she not picking up on all the signs? She's so gullible. That's just what we kept on saying. Like, how is this woman falling for this? And then it, I realized that just as he is swindling money from her with all of his made-up stories, this is what many of our neighbors' perception of Christianity is like. That we have this made-up story that pastors swindle money out of people with. Is that all there is to Christianity? What makes Christianity actually different than some type of scammer? That's the claim that our neighbors have for us, that you're just being scammed. You're being duped into this thing. Here's the primary difference, and it makes all the difference in the world, and it's going to feel very elementary, but Christianity is true. And if it's true, then you're not being scammed. There are scammers who use Christianity. But if the message of Jesus is true, if he really did raise from the dead, then church is not a scam. It's all important. In fact, it might be the most important thing that we could dedicate our time and lives to. But the scriptures are really clear that if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then Christians, you and I, are most to be pitied. We, we are most to be pitied. If he did not raise from the dead, we are most to be pitied. How do we know Christianity is true, that Jesus really resurrected? Well, we know because he appeared to many people, and we'll be going through this over the next three weeks, exploring the resurrection and the proofs for that. But if it's not true, then all that we're doing is for nothing. 2.8 billion people, the largest religious movement the world has ever seen, nothing. Friends, we need to examine the resurrection. There is no controversy about the crucifixion. Even the most atheist scholars believe that Jesus was probably crucified that he was not just a legend, but he was a real person that walked the earth, and he was crucified. But where the trouble comes in is with that resurrection. And if you believe the resurrection, then you can believe anything else in here, because you believe in a God who does miracles. And so we must examine the resurrection. We have to look at the resurrection. We have to be convinced for ourselves that Jesus is alive. 
Because if Jesus isn't alive, if he isn't resurrected, then I don't blame our friends who call us scammers. In fact, if I was not a Christian, if I was not convinced that Jesus was risen from the dead, I would call the church a big scam. It's a reasonable conclusion to draw if you don't believe any of this stuff is true. So we can't get offended when people say it's just a scam. And as you'll see as we open up our scriptures, today is not the first time when people have doubted the resurrection of Jesus. Even his own followers in this story are doubting his own resurrection. Today, we're starting this series, three weeks on exploring the resurrection. I think that this, the, the, um, the slide was up here just a moment ago. But we're doing a three-week series called Exploring the Resurrection. And we typically spend one Sunday talking about the resurrection each year. And that's Easter. It's just completely paltry. It's not enough to talk about Easter just one Sunday a year because it's such a core doctrine to what we believe. We have to talk about the resurrection more than just once a year because there's so many stories about the resurrection. Now it's tempting to hold them all back. I plan on being a pastor for a lot longer. I got at least 30 more years in me and I have a lot of resurrection sermons that I'm going to have to preach over the next several years. But I'm just going to give you three Easter messages essentially because I think it's important that we look at this resurrection story and see how it fits in with all of them. There's a lot that the Bible teaches on resurrection. We're going to be opening our scriptures to just one chapter of one book, and that's Luke chapter 24, because he gives us three different stories about the risen Messiah, Jesus. And we're going to be exploring each one of these. And what I think is interesting about Luke's depiction of the resurrection is that Luke is this, he's a physician, He wrote one of the Gospels. Gospel is this weird word, if you're new to Christianity, that we use as shorthand to talk about the good news of the message of Jesus. But we also use it to talk about a biography of Jesus. And so when we say Gospel, sometimes we're talking about the biographies of Jesus. There's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then sometimes we're just talking about shorthand, the whole message of Jesus, which they kind of work together there. Luke wrote one of the Gospels, He wrote this biography of Jesus. It's the most detailed one in many ways. But then Luke also wrote another book of the Bible. He wrote the book of the Acts of the Apostles. He wrote the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And and in that book, Luke acknowledges and knows that there are many, many stories that he could fill his time with about the resurrected Jesus. Jesus appeared and walked on earth for 40 days, appearing to many disciples, Luke surely has heard more stories than just these three because he knows about how long he's been walking around. But Luke chose these three to include in his gospel so that we might gain from them, so that we might learn from them. So these three are very important. And we're going to dive into the first one that Luke shares. It's the story of his women followers finding Jesus. Well, not really finding Jesus, but they're finding an empty tomb. Women followers finding an empty tomb. So as we dive into this, uh, I want to pray for us uh, that we might hear of this resurrection story. Father, we we pray that you will help us now to to hear this message of the resurrection with new ears, that we might be encouraged, comforted, and we might come to this realization that you are alive, and that if you are alive, we have to follow after you. Uh, if you rose from the dead, that you deserve our complete commitment and that 
That's what's most satisfying to us. So God, I pray that we'd be satisfied in you today. Amen. Two points. First, the reality of the resurrection. And second, the necessity of the resurrection. First, the reality of the resurrection. Second, the necessity of the resurrection. First, let's jump into this reality of the resurrection. In chapter 23, just before we get to Luke chapter 24, we read about the crucifixion. And with the crucifixion, after Jesus died, they took him off the cross and they took him to a tomb. And they placed him in the tomb and they rolled a stone in front of the tomb. And we know that the women that we pick up with today actually follow to see where the tomb is. Verse 55 of chapter 23, it says, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to their commandment. So Jesus died on a Friday. They followed him. They started to prepare their ointments and their their things to help make it smell a little bit better, I suppose. And then on Saturday, they rested. And now it's on the third day, on a Sunday, they go to the tomb. There's at least five different women here that we read about. And they show up to the tomb to care for the body of Christ. I suppose they know that there's going to be a stone in the way, and they're not sure how they're going to handle that stone. And so they they make it to the tomb, and Luke chapter 24, verse 1, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. So the stone being rolled away has to be a surprise. But an even bigger surprise is walking in, no Jesus, he's not there. Then two angels appear to these women and they explain that Jesus isn't there because he's risen from the dead. No one has taken his body, he's risen from the dead. So what do these women do? They go immediately to the disciples of Jesus and they tell them, Hey, Jesus is risen. We've seen an angel. His body's not there. And how do the disciples respond? They, they say, oh, Jesus told us this was going to happen. We've been waiting for you to get back so that we could go and worship Jesus together with you. No. They say, you're crazy. This is just an idle story. They dismiss it right on the spot. They do not believe him. Verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The disciples did not believe the women. And what I want you to see here, even though many churches might teach us that we just need to have blind faith, that Jesus' own disciples who walked with him for three years and heard him predict his own resurrection many times do not have blind faith. His own disciples do not believe it when they're told that he is resurrected. They need to see it for themselves. They want to put their hands on his hands. They want to see that Jesus is walking. They do not believe it. That is a completely normal, reasonable response. Why didn't Jesus, why didn't his disciples immediately believe these women? You might think that today we live in a modern society with modern science. And People from back in ancient times, during Jesus' day, they weren't as modern as us. They were more gullible. They were more susceptible to lies. They were more believable. But the reality is, the resurrection has never been more believable. It was all, it was, no one had ever seen anyone raised from the dead. 
2,000 years ago. They did not believe it when they first heard it. Even the most ardent followers of Christ would not believe this. This is not a modern problem. It is a people problem. It is a world problem. In fact, when they heard it, at least uh, 10 of the disciples, 10 of the 12, well, actually, there's 11 now. So nine of the disciples, because Judas, you know, betrayed Jesus, no longer following him. So there were 12, now there's 11. Nine of them did not even get up. They didn't even go investigate what the women were saying. Two of them got up and went straight to the tomb, John and Peter. And this story only tells about Peter, but he goes running all the way there. But we know from the book of John that John was with him. All the disciples are skeptical until they see Jesus for themselves. And so here's the question for us today. Has Jesus shown himself to you? Because to me, he is not. I've never seen the resurrected Christ. In fact, the scriptures say that he has gone back to heaven. He's ascended back to heaven. And that the risen Christ is no longer walking on earth like that. And if the disciples had to see the risen Christ before they would believe, why should we believe the risen Christ when we have less proof than they did? Why should we believe the resurrection? Now, I think that the way that Luke wrote this, there's a lot of reasons to believe the resurrection. There's a lot of reasons to think that the resurrection is something that actually happened. Just by the way that Luke wrote this, and by the the testimony that we have from the early Christians and from the disciples, But more than that, I think we have a strength to believe because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. That we're not left to ourselves, but the Holy Spirit comes and he helps us to understand. And so if this is something that you've never really considered, what I might encourage you to do as I explain to you why you should believe the resurrection more, is just consider saying, Holy Spirit, help me see this for myself. Just consider asking the Holy Spirit to open up your mind. Even if you don't believe in him, you might say, Okay, I'm just give it a shot. Just ask him. Luke includes a lot of evidence for us. One of the first reasons why we should believe that Jesus rose from the dead is because this story is crazy. All right, that might not sound like a reason to believe it. But it's so crazy that no one would make it up like this. You ever hear a story that, like that? That's like, that story has to be true because no one would make it up like that. If I was trying to write a story that would start a new religious movement for the whole world, I'll tell you one thing. I would not make the women the first ones to find the empty tomb. Because at this time, 2,000 years ago, women were not even allowed to give testimony in court. Their opinions did not matter to much of the society. So if you were trying to make up a story to convince people to follow your religious movement, you would not say the women were the first ones to find them. No, you would say a very credible man was the first one to find them. But that's not how it's written. Why would Luke make the women the first ones to find him unless it's just the way that it happened? Unless it's just the way that the Lord chose for it to happen. Another reason why we should believe the testimony that Luke is writing here is because Luke is doing this thing that scholars do to this day. And he's naming his sources. If you've written a paper before, you know that you can't just bring random information in and say, I just know that to be true. Based upon, what makes you know that's true? Well, I know it's true. I'm my own source. No, you cannot 
list yourself as a source. You have to recognize a separate source that's done the research that you can draw it in. Wikipedia does not work. All right? You have to have an actual source that you are referring to. And here, Luke is listing his sources. If you read the way that he writes this, he lists many names. The women that find Jesus, they're not anonymous. He says it's Mary Magdalene, Joanna. Joanna, by the way, this is actually very interesting. I didn't learn this until this week. Joanna, Luke chapter 8, she's actually the wife of the administrator to the King Herod. She's got this high up place in the, in the um, political system of the day as the wife to the administrator of the King Herod. And he lists Mary, the mother of James. He's writing an account of what happened with sources. And the original readers, they could go see, search out these sources and talk with them. They were able to, to speak with them and actually consider what they say, weigh the evidence. This isn't the only place where this is done. The, the New Testament Gospels go to great lengths to write actual sources into their work. There's a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham. And he goes through and he shows that they're actually not just listing random names from the day and age. They're listing unique names where you can actually go find that person in that place if you wanted to for the original readers. We'll be talking about more reasons to believe the resurrection over the next few weeks. Those are just a few from this passage. Now, what I want to look at now is what this angel said to the women. Because the women, they appeared, they, they showed up. And verse 4, while they, uh, while they were perplexed about this, the empty tomb, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. This word dazzling, that's the same word that we see um, appear whenever Jesus is transfigured. It, it's kind of like lightning, dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? That's what we call a rhetorical question. They don't want a response. They're trying to prove a point. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? They went to a cemetery to find Jesus, but Jesus is alive. So why would you go somewhere with only dead people if you're looking for an alive person? And it just leads me to ask the question of us today. How are you approaching Jesus? Are you going to Jesus just looking the same way you would look for an answer from anybody else? Are you approaching Jesus as one possible solution to your spiritual longings? Are you comparing the different religions side by side and saying, I'll read a little bit of this one, I'll read a little bit of that one, I'll read a little bit of this one, and I'll see which one best reflects what I believe about the world and best speaks to me. When you do that, you're going to compare the dead with the dead in many ways. Why do you seek the living among the dead. Jesus is alive. He's not just another philosopher that we can compare all the different religions with. He's not just another religious leader. He's different from all of those other leaders because he is alive still to this day. He's resurrected. Maybe you're this person that says, I appreciate the teachings of Jesus. I appreciate what he has to say about loving your enemy but I cannot believe that he's alive. But friends, if you appreciate what he has to say about loving his enemy, your enemies, 
you also have to recognize that every account of Jesus saying, love your enemies, he's also including things predicting his own resurrection, and also they all depict him being resurrected. You can't pick and choose what you believe about Jesus. If you like his teachings, you need to see it out all the way through and seriously consider this claim, not only that he's resurrected, but that he's the son of God, but that he's the king of the universe, that he's alive today, that he's still reigning and ruling. It's all connected. Friends, the resurrection is real. So why do you go looking for the living among the dead? He's alive. How do you relate with him? Is your Bible just another book that you're trying to gain wisdom from? Why do you look for the living among the dead? Do you relate with him as a person, as a, as a person who cares for you, as a God who is alive? The resurrection is real. That's the reality of the resurrection. Let's talk about the necessity of the religion, uh, resurrection. Going back to what the angels said to the women. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Verse 6, he is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. And they remembered his words. Now what I want you to see here is this one tiny word that the angel said. This one tiny word in here. He says, Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. These women were at the grave of Jesus, mourning his death, loving him with all of their hearts, there to, to celebrate what they've learned from him, but just mainly just to mourn that he is gone. You see, these women, they didn't understand why he must die. But Jesus, he said, I must die. He knew that his resurrection was necessary. His death was necessary. He taught them, these, these women, to love their enemies. And he loved his enemies all the way to his death. They viewed it as a tragedy. Their mentor, their guru, their rabbi, their leader, their teacher was killed by the government. They must have been inspired by his death because it led them to his grave. But they did not understand why it was necessary. Do you understand why it was necessary? Do you understand why he had to die? Why it had to be like this? I love the way that the New City Catechism puts this. This is the catechism that I read with my kids, that I teach them important things like this. And it says it like this. Since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. By his substitutionary atoning death, he alone redeems us from hell and gains, us, and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. Jesus didn't die just as an example for us. Jesus didn't die to make us happy. Jesus died an atoning death for sins. He died because it was necessary for any of us to know God. He died because each of us have sinned against God, 
And his death was necessary if we want to have relationship for him. He died to take on the punishment of our sin. You see, Jesus' death, it was not It was not a sidetrack to his mission. It was core to his mission. The women thought that Jesus was going to come again. They thought, Jesus, they thought that Jesus was going to rise up and become a great leader in Israel. They thought that he was going to make Israel great again. They thought he was going to be the new king, that he was going to be walking around, and that all the world was going to be made right again because Jesus was going to raise to be the king, and he's going to be the greatest ruler that Israel had ever seen. He was the promised one. He was the new David. They were so excited about who he was. They really believed in him. But when they saw him die, their hopes and dreams died right there as well because they didn't understand. They didn't understand that Jesus' kingdom is not just Israel, but it's the entire world. They didn't understand that the way that you, that the enemies that they had were not the Roman government, but death itself. You see, Jesus took on not just the Roman government, he took on the greatest enemy that any of us can face, death, and he rose victorious against it. Amen. They wanted him to take a crown of gold, and he took a crown of thorns. They wanted him to take the throne of the of the, the palace of Israel, and he took a wooden cross on a hill. They wanted him to live forever, and he died. Because they did not understand why his death was necessary. But his death was necessary. Friends, we make a big deal about the crucifixion. We all, when I do member interviews here, no one ever misses the crucifixion when I ask them what the gospel is. They all understand Jesus died for me. But Jesus didn't just die, but he won the victory. He rose again. His death is essentially important. It was necessary. You, you can understand the death of Jesus. You can love Jesus. You can even show up to serve Jesus. You can show up to his grave to put uh, nice things on his grave to make him smell a little bit better. You can be completely devoted to him and yet not understand why his death is necessary for you. You see, these women, they still didn't understand what Jesus had even done for them. This was faith, but it was only half faith. It wasn't fully there. They didn't understand that they needed his death on their behalf, but yet he's already died for, him, for them. Friends, are you here today and you don't understand that you even need him to die for you, but yet he has already done that for you? Isn't that good news? That before we even recognize that we need it, he's done it for us. That God loves us even while we were his enemies. The followers of Jesus are not swindlers trying to get your money. Sure, there are some. There are some people out there that in Jesus' name are trying to swindle you. You have to be wise and discerning. But we're not trying to swindle you because Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, then everything we're doing is not in vain. Everything we're doing is to bring glory and praise to his name. He's not just some dead founder of a religion. He is alive. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He's alive. Each week we remember why his death was necessary by celebrating a sacred meal. We take of the bread, we drink of the juice to remember that his death was necessary for us. But not to end there. 
to remember that his death is necessary for us, but the scriptures also say that we do it until he comes again. That we know that he's risen, that he is alive currently in heaven, and that one day he's coming again to make the world new, to make it right, to make it good again. And we only do this, this is a temporary thing, we do this until he returns again. So let's, let's stand and let's pray as we respond to God. I'll walk us through the communion meal during our next song. Father, as we approach your table now, we pray that you give us a great humility to understand why your death was necessary for us, why you are alive today, and, and how we can trust in you. Father, I pray for anyone who doubts the reality of the resurrection, that as we explore this over the next several weeks, that you will open our minds to understand it in a new kind of way. God, we pray that you will um, help us to, to see you as the living king and not just another dead philosopher. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.